From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The pandemic is disrupting life across the University of Colorado's four campuses. CU President Mark Kennedy joins us live to talk about what's ahead, from remote learning and financial stress to working with a new board of regents. Then, what's the future of the BLM on the Western Slope once the Biden administration takes over? And the outlook of the CORE Act to protect Colorado's great outdoors. Plus, the story of inclusivity behind a new rock climbing route in Staunton State Park. The part about climbing that I like is the fact that I can work on this puzzle and not think about all of the stress that's going on. I found the idea of going and making a puzzle piece out of a really large wall on the side of a mountain to be the most incredible opportunity. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The pandemic is disrupting life across the University of Colorado's four campuses. It's logistically harder to conduct classes, and it's created a financial bind that's hitting students, faculty, and staff. I'm joined by the university's president, Mark Kennedy. President Kennedy, welcome. It's great to be with you, Avery. The Republican regents who controlled the board hired you on a party-line vote. In the recent election, Democrats got a majority on the board. It's the first time that's happened in more than four decades. How will your relationship with the board change now that Democrats are in charge? I'm not sure it will change much at all. I think we've got regents that care about the university, that want to advance its impact, positive impact for our students and our state. I've been conversing with all the region candidates for the last several months before the election, congratulated the new ones on the night of the election, and just spent nearly two hours with the three new regions as part of our orientation process. So we're we're looking forward to uh, a wonderful relationship with all of our nine regions moving forward. CU's budget is set to drop by $250 million in the next academic year. That's due to a decline in enrollment during the pandemic. Students are also feeling that financial burden. Some regents have argued students shouldn't pay full tuition because they're getting a limited college experience. At the last board meeting, Republican regent Sue Sharkey opposed the tuition cut, saying that it would cause more employee pay cuts and furloughs. Here's a question she posed at the time. Who should cover the cost of education in the state of Colorado, the tuition payer or the taxpayer? How would you answer that question? Well, I would say if you, come, if you add up what CU receives from the state in state funding, what we receive in in-state tuition, and you divide that by the number of in-state students, CU is delivering more to the state for what it receives than any university in the country. That's any university in country or conversely, uh, CU, the state of Colorado, is giving less for what it receives than any other state in the country. So we're, we're delivering a high-quality education to our students. It's a challenging time for us all. We're spending more money uh, to deliver that, given the extra cost of the testing and the isolation, uh, as well as the extra cost for a technical uh, 
capabilities to deliver some of our programming digitally, but we're not passing that on, and we're in our third year in a row of having uh, the, the same tuition. So we're working hard to deliver a great value, high-quality education, advance students along their mission to achieve their educational goals. Part of Sharkey's concern was for university employees. Hundreds of university employees are being subject to pandemic furloughs or pay cuts. Is the worst over for them, or are there financial issues on the horizon? Well, let me just say that no university in the state has uh, done more in terms of uh, budget uh, adjustments, uh, furloughs for 10% for leadership, 5% for most of the rest of the workforce than anyone else, and that is of grave concern to me which is why, as you know, I, our four chancellors, uh, faculty and staff governance, opposed the, the measure you're referring to because it would have put more of a burden on our hardworking faculty and staff that are really putting extra effort to deliver for our students in our state. So uh, that is, is something of grave concern. Spring, as you know, we're in the middle of a, another surge, and we're hoping uh, to make sure that we can continue to deliver on our mission of teaching and discovery in the spring as we make sure our community is safe. So I don't know that we know the end, but we're working hard uh, to navigate through these challenging times in a way that is respectful, not just to the students in the state, but to our faculty and staff as well. And to be clear, do you think the state should support CU more? Uh, I absolutely think when you look at the state, we are relying on out-of-state students to subsidize the excellent quality we have at CU that's a risk in this environment. We are also relying on other states to educate uh, our college graduates because we don't graduate within the state as many college graduates as our state economy needs. As we see the, a drop in enrollment on the forecast as in, in the demographic future, uh, we could find ourselves a few years from now with not having the talent we need because those out-of-state students stayed uh, in their state where they graduated from, and, and it's going to hurt the economy. So, yes, I do believe the state of Colorado, it would be in their own interest uh, to invest more in higher education, which is pandemic is only going to increase the need for the college graduates that are going to drive the economy in the future. There is no question college during COVID saw a lot of on-campus amenities shut down. That includes Boulder's buff pool and social activities. Has that caused the CU system to reflect on what's essential to students and education? And how will that affect future spending and budgeting across the system? Well, let me just say, you know, uh, amenities like that are paid for by students elected in voting for those amenities. And we hope to get back to an on-campus experience in the way we've had in the future. But the ultimate essence of, of what we are trying to do is provide the education, advance people towards their degrees or their educational outcomes that they're looking for so that they can move into the economy well-prepared uh, for a good life. So, so the essence of the education is the continued uh, focus of what we're trying to provide in a manner where we keep our community safe. Three of four Colorado counties where CU campuses are located are moving to tighter restrictions because of the rapid increase in COVID-19 cases that you mentioned. We're entering what's likely to be a devastating winter. What will you direct campuses to do to increase protections for students, workers, and communities for the upcoming semester? Well, we're watching this ramp up in cases very carefully. Uh, we're going to be keeping on a flexible uh, position as to what spring starts like. Uh, we've uh, committed to give a further update once we see what Thanksgiving looks like in the aftermath in mid-December. Uh, and we need to be flexible as to how we approach spring because this rise could last 
uh, through the holidays and into the uh, new year. And so our focus will continue to be, uh, again, advancing students in their educational mission, making sure we're keeping our community safe. But within that, each of the campuses are working hard to figure out what kind of a student experience can we safely have within COVID to make sure that they have the the health, the, the, the sharing with each other and, and all the social aspects of college. We want to do that as best we can within the constraints of whatever the, the public health professionals are saying we must reside within. And when you say that you'll direct them to be careful, what does that look like in practice? Well, it's, it's not at this point certain whether we begin our semester on campus or we, whether we need to delay an on-campus experience. Uh, we are we are guided by the dials that the county and the state set, and those dials we're, we're now, as you mentioned, in a red in three of our four counties, uh, have certain limitations that we have to, to live within. So that is what we're going to make sure that we're continuing our collaboration with the public health professionals and making the best decisions we can uh, to complete our mission safely. Testing is another component of this. Experts say that widespread testing in college campuses is key to prevent outbreaks. But the state of Colorado ranks pretty low in terms of administering tests. How will you ensure universities get enough resources to regularly test a majority of the campus community? Well, we uh, have developed some of our own uh, screening tests uh, that are moving uh, hopefully towards FDA approval here and and regularly testing we have begun at the, the beginning of the semester, everybody on campus, but we've increasingly learned as we've moved through the semester that we need to be providing testing for our off-campus community as well. So you've seen the testing capability of each of our campuses having radically increased within this semester. And I, I think to the extent we enter next semester, we're going to be beginning spring semester with a far greater testing capability and regimen than we even began in the fall. We had a pretty robust uh, approach to fall as well. Can you share what kind of screening tests that you've developed? Are they PCR tests, rapid tests? We, we have a saliva test uh, that uh, we use as screening, and if it tests positive, then we affirm that with a PCR test thereafter. You know, Some people may wonder why there might be a high rate in the PCR test at times. It's in part because we're sending to those PCR tests of those that we suspect uh, may be testing uh, positive. We have a question for you posed by a PhD candidate at CU Boulder. Hello, President Kennedy. My name is Thomas Peyu. I am a PhD candidate and graduate instructor in critical media practices. About 400 members of our university community, including dozens of senior faculty members and advisors, signed an open letter in which they recommend that you improve academic and research support and improve representation and visibility for international students, scholars and faculty within university governance bodies in the context of the fourth consecutive year of enrollment dropping and the volatility of the current socio-economic global moment. What are the concrete steps that you wish to take to address this appeal and raise CU's national and global profile from an inclusivity and diversity standpoint in accordance to the principles put forward in your IDEA plan? Do you include international education and enhanced support for underrepresented diverse groups, such as international students, scholars, faculty, and staff, among the priorities of your administration? What is your response to that? So there's three or four parts to that. Number one, even before this last year, uh, we have created a strategic plan system-wide 
that has four pillars, one of which is enhancing our diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've hired the system's first-ever chief diversity officer, and we're working very hard to advance measures to improve uh, our, our efforts as well as their outcomes on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Towards that end, I recently asked the CU Foundation to provide $5 million that we are distributing across the campuses uh, for a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, innovation fund to help uh, fund and spur uh, new advances that we're we're doing in that regard. And and we're making a lot of significant steps, uh, but there's more to come. As it relates to international and receiving that international level, even prior to receiving that, we have been uh, advocating at the federal level uh, against some restrictions that have been put on our international students uh, have both uh, signed on and, and led letters to say the international students is a big part of our of our university community. We want to enhance that. And I would suggest we are a global university. Uh, we are, if you look at the recent global ratings, Boulder alone is uh, like 55. You add all four of our campuses together, we're argue, arguably one of the 30 or 40 most significant universities in the world. Uh, we welcome international students. We want to have more of them. They add to our community. And when you look at the research impact that that we provide, that also ranks amongst the top on the planet. So uh, CU is a global university, and, and the the person that you, you had to, giving the statement is right to suggest that we need to prioritize uh, both diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, as well as enhancing uh, our attractiveness to international students. Undergraduate enrollment suffered this year because of coronavirus. How do you intend to prevent a further decline as students and families financially rebuild? Well, I think what you'll find is that we were down slightly, uh, and most of that was due to the international students at the current environment and made it hard to come to, as well as freshmen. Uh, Or actually, if you look at overall the enrollment, uh, it's much greater than what the freshmen. That creates a ripple through the future. So we're we're both focused on on recruiting a a great class for next year, but also that 12 or so percent of the freshmen that decided to sit out this year, many of them of which deferred with us, to engage with them to see if we can't bring them back. Early news suggests that some of those who deferred will be joining us or had an intent to enjoy it, join us in the spring. So both focusing on the new class as well as getting that slice of this last uh, year of high school graduates that decided to sit it out to encourage them to come back to see you uh, continue to be a focus for us. But overall, we're maybe down 1% as a system. And uh, and within that, though, is freshman class being down greater, and that continues to be a focus for us. CU's flagship university, CU Boulder, has slipped a bit in world rankings. Um, just briefly before we go, how, why do you think that that is, and how do you intend to remedy it? I don't know that they have slipped in world rankings. And if you look at, for example, the research impact and you look at the system overall, of which both uh, CU Boulder and CU Anschutz are significant, uh, we're the 10th largest public research university in the world. I was just looking at startups uh, being generated, and Boulder by itself was the ninth in the nation amongst public universities and generating startups. So when you think of not only the quality education we provide, the discovery that we provide that sparks economic uh, growth throughout the state and nation, as well as the startups we provide, the overall impact 
of CU on Colorado and on the nation is profound and it's only been getting greater. We have to wrap up there. Thank you, President Kennedy. Mark Kennedy is president of the University of Colorado System and its four campuses, Boulder, Denver, Anschutz Medical and Colorado Springs. The ink is barely dry on the lease for the new Bureau of Land Management headquarters in Grand Junction, and already there's talk of moving it right back to Washington, D.C. under the incoming Biden administration. That would be welcome news to the groups who believe that the move was designed to weaken the BLM, but a disappointment for those who worked so long to get it to Colorado. CPR's Caitlin Kim covered the headquarters move out west and is now looking into its chances of returning east. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Avery. Before we look to the future, let's catch up quickly on what it means to have it here at all. What was the rationale for relocating to Colorado? Well, the main reason for the move was to bring the Bureau of Land Management decision makers closer to the people they serve and the public lands that they manage. You know, the argument was 99 percent of BLM lands are west of the Mississippi River and the headquarters should be there, too. But, you know, many people who support BLM's mission say having leadership in the West has not made the organization any more responsive to local communities' opinions or concerns about BLM lands. You know, they say decisions are still being made in D.C., but this time it's being done by Secretary of the Interior David Bernhardt. They say the move was really about hollowing out the agency because a lot of experienced staff left rather than make the move. The new headquarters, it doesn't really contain all that many staff, right? Right. You know, when this move was first proposed, people were envisioning a move of hundreds of jobs. But when it was announced, just 27 positions were slated for Grand Junction. Later, that was increased to about 40. The BLM director is supposed to work out of this office, but there has not been a confirmed director director at any time during the Trump administration. Instead, senior leaders have been rotating through the office. At one point, it was for these like two week stints. But this was all before the pandemic. I sent an email to the BLM office asking for an update on the number of people actually working in Grand Junction and haven't heard back. You know, and this has been one of Congress's frustrations with the move. They haven't been able to get a lot of information about how it's actually working out. A GAO report found that many people who worked in D.C. chose not to move with their job out west. It was something like a third of the headquarters staff actually moved. Of course, the BLM made this move during the pandemic when lots of people, including in the federal government, were working remotely. Do we know if that affected things? You know, not really. As I mentioned before, we don't know how many people are actually working out of that office. At one point, there were reports that the BL- that that BLM employees from other nearby offices were being asked to work out of the headquarters to, you know, sort of fill it out. But these days, with people working remotely, you could knock on the door of the headquarters and maybe someone will answer, but maybe they won't. And maybe it's because of the <laughs> pandemic or it's because of <laughs> it's not staff. So. What what do we know so far about what President-elect Biden wants to do with the bureau? So I spoke with conservationists, some environmentalists, and some former BLM employees, and most everyone expects the Biden administration to move the leadership back. Now, one person I spoke with suggested that it could be like a surgical decision about which jobs to move back and which jobs the administration thinks need to be, um, sorry, which jobs the administration thinks should be in D.C. and which can stay out West, you know, like the director and other senior leaders, uh, the legislative staff, they should come back, but still keep some of the jobs that moved out West, out West. Um, But 
you know, maybe like the communications team or some of the program manager jobs. But E&E's news reports that the Biden transition team plans to make moving the headquarters back to D.C. a priority. And that includes trying to rehire senior staff that left BLM because of the move. Senator Cory Gardner was a big advocate of bringing the BLM to Grand Junction. With both him and President Trump losing their reelection bids, does that mean the idea has just run out of friends in Washington? No. You know, it's important to remember this move had support from Republicans and Democrats in Colorado. A spokesperson for Democratic Senator Michael Bennett says he wants a fully functioning BLM headquarters in Grand Junction. Bennett has been critical of how the move was done. You know, it didn't improve in decision making and it drove smart people out of the agency. But Bennett's spokesperson said, quote, any relocation should be more than symbolic. It must include the staff and resources to actually improve public land management. You know, he's looking forward to working with the delegation, Congress, and the Biden administration to make this a reality. The incoming third congressional district representative, Republican Lauren Boebert, also raised the alarm through social media about the possible move back to D.C. Her spokesperson says Bobart plans on reaching out to the rest of the delegation, you know, in the near future to share her concerns, engage their support for opposing the move back to D.C. You know, I'm going to be honest. I think a lot will depend on who Biden's interior secretary will be. A couple of the names on the shortlist have been very critical of the move. You know, others have been less so. Lynn, I want to ask about another Colorado issue being considered in Washington right now. The CORE Act. This would increase protections on around 400,000 acres in Colorado. It had a Senate hearing this week. Does that mean it might actually get somewhere? You know, that's the hope of CORE supporters. What this hearing did is tick off a box, a pretty important box. But for any bill that hopes to actually become a law, it's a box that needs to get checked. Who testified at the hearing? What was the message? It was mainly Trump administration officials, a representative of the Forest Service and the BLM. You know, the short message is they oppose the CORE Act. The Forest Service objects to imposing broad land restrictions and reducing areas uh, for open, reducing areas open for motorized recreation. The BLM said it opposes it because the bill withdraws hundreds of thousands of acres from mineral and mining leasing, which goes against the department's goal of domestic energy dominance. Last fall, when CORE passed the House, the White House said if it passes Congress, President Trump would veto the bill. What happens now? So now we wait and see. The best chance the bill has right now of passing is getting included in must-pass legislation that the president can't afford to veto. The House included it in the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. The Senate did not. Now, negotiators are meeting now to discuss what will or will not be included in the final bill. It is interesting to note that Denver Democrat um, Diana DeGette was named one of the negotiators. She has a Colorado wilderness bill included in the NDAA included in the NDA too. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Lynn. Thank you, Avery. Caitlin Kim is CPR's Washington, D.C. correspondent. After the break, making rock climbing more inclusive. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Benta Berkland from the CPR Newsroom. For this week's bonus episode of Purplish, we talked to two of Colorado's top political strategists, Democrat Craig Hughes. Where the Republican Party goes now will be very interesting to see if we are indeed a blue state. And Republican Josh Penry. Voters in Colorado are still kind of at their core a pretty discerning, mavericky lot. Purplish, the Colorado politics podcast from CPR News. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. 
Staunton State Park southwest of Denver has a new sport climbing route. That's the kind of rock climbing route with anchors permanently drilled into the rock so that climbers can clip in for protection as they go. The folks who set that route are on a mission to make rock climbing more inclusive. Alan Primus is a seasoned route setter and volunteer for the park. He's been climbing since he was a kid. My parents did some rock climbing when they were in their college outing clubs back in upstate New York. And they sent me to a climbing class when I was in high school. That would have been the early 70s. And I'd been in upstate New York climbing trees since I could climb. And rock climbing seemed pretty fun. So when I went off to college, I found an outing club with a guy who knew how to use the formal rock climbing technologies of the day. And I've been climbing ever since. When he moved to Colorado, he started setting routes somewhat out of necessity. Back in the 90s, I was looking around and trying to find some easy routes for beginners. And at that time, I was climbing a lot in the South Platte area. And there weren't very many easy routes out there. There were some really hard routes. And there were some easy routes that were horrifically protected. Um, There was one climb that was in the the guidebook that I had at a grade of 5.5, which is a beginner-level climbing, that essentially was a free solo to a bolted anchor, which is... Yes, if you fall. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. So I got myself a drill and I went out and established a couple of easy climbs. For Primus, it's not just about easy climbs. He also wants to see hard climbs made safer for climbers of every body type. Not just the stereotypical lanky guy who can reach a long way for the next anchor. He says one of the most important qualities of an inclusive route is... Making sure the bolts are within reach of the good stance so that you can reach out and stay safe. The other is keeping the bolts one above the other relatively close together. I was out working on a potential part of a new route, and there were a couple of other women nearby who were climbing a route that's above my grade. But the first woman to give it a try got through the hard part, and then there was a 12-foot gap between bolts, and she looked at that gap and said, I'm not doing that. Primus points out it's not surprising that sport climbing routes are geared toward white men's bodies since it's mostly white men who are setting the routes. Most of the outdoor developers that I know, and it's not that I know that many, but in general, I don't know of many women developing routes, nor any women of color. And I thought, you know, maybe I could try and do something. He saw a video a New York climber put together about an indoor route setting clinic for women and non-binary climbers. I thought, that's kind of close to what I'm looking for, but I'm interested in things outside. And so I just kind of out of the blue center of the email saying, how can I, as an old white guy, develop routes that might be better for women? And that was kind of the beginning of our conversation. If you don't mind me reading you the subject line, it was very charming to some degree and also really funny. I get this email sometime in, on July 20th. It says, female-friendlier outdoor routes, question mark. Alan Primus writes, hi, I wonder how I, in parentheses, as an old white male, can make new outdoor routes more female-friendly. And then he talks about like how he's been developing routes outside that are particularly beginner-friendly. And I was like, huh, this is, this is something I had never considered. But, you know, try me. That's Lam Toyabo, the climber from New York. I'm a reporter by day looking at inequality and um, looking at it through the lens of data. And by night, I like to scale walls and rocks and sometimes trees. 
is when there's no wall. And I organize a group called Try Hard Crew, which organizes meetups for women and gender nonconforming folks in New York City and is also pushing for more women and non-binary folks in the realm of route sitting with a particular focus on women of color. Last month, she came to Colorado to create a route with Primus. Her friend and fellow climber, Tiffany Blunt, flew down too. I basically, I live in the New York, New Jersey area. I'm really close to New York. And um, by day, I'm the director of media education for a nonprofit organization based in Manhattan. By all other hours of the day, I'm climbing. Um, I am a local leader for Brown Girls Climb New York. I run an organization called Black Girls Boulder, and I climb a lot. After their trip, I caught up with them by video call to talk about route setting outdoors, as well as their work to make more welcoming and diverse spaces in the sport. Colorado climber Montserrat Alvarez Matajuela joined us as well. I currently live in so-called Boulder, Colorado, the ancestral lands of the Arapaho Nation. And by day, I work at an educational nonprofit in the outdoor industry, by all the other hours of the day <laughs> to follow Tiffany's uh, layout. I am part of the founding crew of Brown Girls Climb. Currently serve the role as the outdoor program director. I'm a volunteer with Latino Outdoors. I'm also a community organizer and yeah, also like to climb and spend time outside and dance and sing and eat food. So that's what I do. Before we talk about the route you set last month, I want to know how you all got into climbing. Tiffany, what was your first climbing experience? The first time I climbed ever, I was on vacation looking for things to do in Colorado Springs. And of course, the number one thing apparently to do in Colorado is rock climbing, <laughs> which I had honestly never heard of. I have no previous memory of climbing prior to that. And it just looked like something that I would do because I like anything that's physical and outdoorsy. And so I hired a guy to take me to Garden of the Gods. And it wasn't supposed to be one-on-one, -on -one, but no one else showed up. And so it was basically a one-on-one -on -one climbing guiding experience. And it was the best thing I'd ever done in my life. <laughs> From that point on, I was hooked. Although I came back to New York and went climbing in a gym and it wasn't really the same experience until I went back um, or went to a climbing festival in Alabama that made me fall in love again. So since then, which was two years ago, I've been pretty much on the wall constantly, outdoor or indoor. <laughs> My experience was very boring. Um, a friend of mine actually was just like, oh, I think you seem like the kind of person who would like to rock climb. And I was like, huh. I have never heard of this thing. I don't know what this is. I've never been on a camping trip. And I was that was like five years ago or something like that. And I ended up going with her. And I don't think I've ever seen her back in the gym, but I ended up just getting very into indoor rock climbing and putting on my headphones and doing it as a de-stressing kind of thing. But yeah, I remember the first time I went, I was like, oh, this is a thing I have been doing for years, just going up some trees instead of like going up a wall. And so... Um, I really got into it. I think I got a pair of shoes within like two weeks of starting to climb. And it was like this beautiful meditative thing that I could do after work and just kind of ignore the world. Nice. Monserrat, why don't you go next? 
Yeah, my first time doing like a technical rock climb was in college. I've been working in the outdoor industry for seven years as an outdoor educator and instructor. And it was part of my trip leader training at my college program. And this was back in North Carolina where I grew up. And I was pretty turned off from the climbing scene. And so I didn't really climb during the first two years of my career. And it wasn't until I moved to Colorado that, like Tiffany, I got hooked to climbing again and have just been doing my thing on the rocks for a while now. Um, And, you know, since then I've been figuring out how to reshape people's first experiences uh, being outside or indoors. There's a lot to unpack there. What happened that initially turned you off of climbing? Um, I don't think it was like a what happened. It's more like all of the things that happened. <laughs> um, it's just, it was the space, the the environment, the folks who frequent those spaces. When I started working in the outdoors, I was most of the time the only person of color and the only woman in my trip leader settings. And oftentimes the students who were coming to our programs also didn't reflect my identities or just any diversity. Uh, It was pretty homogenous spaces, very white spaces, very like men dominated spaces. And so I honestly didn't really see myself as being part of that community for a really long time. And Lam and Tiffany, did you see yourself represented at the gym or on the rock wall when y'all started climbing? (laughs) <laughs> no way. <laughs> that's I'll, I'll be honest with you. That's part of the reason why I didn't go back. I mean, I went to a climbing gym in Queens and I, yeah, like I said, it wasn't what I thought it was. And when I did eventually join a gym because one opened up a block from my job and that's the only reason I joined it. I was always the only black girl in there. I mean, every now and again, you get other women in there, but there was definitely nobody who looked like me. So I was actually about to cancel my membership until I went to Color the Crag. Like I started my membership in August, went to Color the Crag in October. And then I kept my membership because after Color the Crag, I was like, okay, there is a community out there. There's people. I just have to dig a little deeper. But I do climbing competitions and it's usually you can count on one hand how many Black girls are climbing. So for me, it's it's very alienating, but I've kind of fought past it. Climbing outside can be a little bit nerve-wracking for me, but I love and prefer being outdoors. But that is a very, very tight space. So, yeah. I think, I mean, to echo all of these experiences, I don't think I felt particularly comfortable in the gym, in the environment. But the thing that I always would do is put on my headphones and be like, I really like this thing. Let me do it and pull through and push through and kind of ignore the folks around me. I think climbing gyms can oftentimes kind of like be left to what I like to sometimes refer to the tyranny of the loudest and sometimes the loudest are the people who are the boldest who feel like it has to be a replica of a high school setting where the strongest and meanest dudes oftentimes and oftentimes a very homogenous type of granola white dude who comes in and kind of poisons the atmosphere like that seemed to be a thing that I felt very strongly when I came into the climbing gym. But um, for me, it was about, I'm a developer who does data journalism and have always been surrounded and been the only one in my newsroom doing what I do, being the only woman of color in the fields that I'm at. Like knowing that as my general modus operandi made it easier for me to just 
concentrate on the thing that I love doing and like really cut out all of the other noises around that. But yeah, it took me quite some time to find a community. And I think the kind of work that Brown Girls Climb does, the kind of work that Color the Craig, one of the festivals that we attended, do, that really helped actually establish community in something um, and climb for community rather than climb for singular individual achievement. You've told us how alienating it felt when you didn't see women, especially women of color, at the rock climbing gym or climbing outdoors. Lum, how does that homogeneity in the climbing community translate to the routes themselves being exclusive? In 2017, I remember seeing a panel about climbing and one of the women on the panel was like, most of these routes are set in the gym and also outside by really tall white men. And that manifests itself in so many ways in the outdoors um, in particular. There are really horrible racist names that have been put to these routes. They are oftentimes set by people who have a very different physique than, let's say, shorter women like myself. Like I'm five foot two, I'm a little short and stout. And for me, getting to the first clip to clip in, which is an anchor metal device where you clip in to find some safety in between climbing from one part of the route to another. But like basically a lot of the ways in which these routes have been developed never really took into consideration the kind of needs that someone like me, a short five foot two woman of color would have. And that translates into coming to the crag and seeing names that affront like every part of your personality all the way to like not being able to physically do it. And I think in many ways that translates into what feels like a very unwelcoming environment. And from what I've heard from a lot of women of color in particular and non-binary folks of color is that that is a really high barrier of entry for people who are just starting the sport. And Montserrat, I know you also climb a lot outdoors. Is that something that you also experience in Colorado? Um, yeah, I mean, I think like when we talk about exclusive spaces in climbing and in the outdoors, it's such a broad topic. So I'm actually, I'm not a sport climber. I don't like sport climbing for the reason that most of the time people protect what feels good for them. But I think to kind of go back to Lam's point, you know, there's so much more in the culture of exclusivity that exists in the climbing world. And one of those big things is just like the names of roots. They're really insensitive. They're homophobic, they're transphobic, they're racist, they're sexist. Like, And the ones to be putting up these roots or have access to those resources or have access to the knowledge, you know, they don't reflect the community's the diverse community that we hope to bring into the com climbing community and spaces. And I think there's a really broad response right now happening where some folks understand and they get it. And some of them just don't, and they don't care. I think it's really easy when you're not the one being impacted by those things to tell someone to just suck it up and go climb, especially as women of color. We don't leave our identities at the crag or at the trailhead or at the parking lot or at the parking lot at the gym. We need to be able to talk about these things in order to be able to bring in more communities into these spaces because how they've been historically created is with us not in mind. And for people who aren't familiar, these route names, they end up in guidebooks, they end up online and on apps and all the different ways that people identify the routes. Tell me about how you've each carved out space for yourselves and found community with other women and especially women of color and gender nonconforming folks. 
Well, for me, it was my introduction to Brown Girls Fine because that was the only time where I felt like, okay, I can actually do this. This is for me. There's other people doing this that look like me and I have a safe space to go (laughs) because from there I became a leader. And then the fact that I discovered climbing at the age of 35, that like made me sad. I was like, I wish I knew about climbing in college at the least, if not when I was a kid. And so I just wanted to create a space to set girls up who maybe would never know anything about this sport, but would excel at it and sort of cultivate that space. Um, One of the things that I think was really helpful, climbing a gym that was all set by women and then also going to Color the Crag, both of those spaces felt just very different from what I had experienced in the gym before. What we experienced um, at this climbing festival for people of color in many ways was that this is an alternate universe of how it could be when we are community-minded. Everywhere we climbed during that festival, people were like, oh yeah, this is how you pronounce my name. And oh, how do you pronounce your name? Like even little things in which people were just mindful of the particularities of each of our experiences was really, really beautiful. And so when we came back, similar to what Tiffany was doing is two other women of color, we started a group, Try Hard Crew, which every month we would meet at a gym. And I think you could see other people being like, oh, we should do that too sometime where we just come together and are giddy and try hard things together. Like later on, we started doing route setting clinics where we had women and gender non-conforming folks join us to make routes in the gym. And I think by just kind of like modeling a different experience, we hopefully were able to get other people on board with that idea. That's a beautiful way of shaping community. Montserrat, you've helped found the national organization Brown Girls Climb. Tell me about the value you found in building that space. It was through the affinity spaces that I've been able to create, both with Brown Girls Climb, but also all these other amazing organizations that are out here doing work to create affinity spaces in climbing, rafting, hiking, backpacking, snow sports, like you name it. There are organizations who are carving their own space in the outdoor industry and the outdoor spaces. You know, any time that I get to be in affinity spaces, whether it's women of color spaces or POC spaces or queer spaces, like those are all things that feel like such a healing part of my life because I work in the outdoor industry and I oftentimes don't see that as much as I would like to. And being able to facilitate those spaces for my communities feels like such a privilege. And if I can do that for the rest of my life, I would be happy. Yeah, those are such important spaces. Let's talk a little bit about the route setting. Lam, you made a series of videos about diversity and climbing, and one of them is about route setting indoors. And it caught the attention of Alan Primus, who's been setting routes outdoors for years now. Alan reached out to you. He said, how can I help? How did that culminate in you and Tiffany coming to Colorado to set up a route with Alan in Staunton Park? Basically, it's a combination of like me being incredibly stubborn about stuff and um, pulling poor Tiffany into this thing. <laughs> but uh, basically, um, I get this email sometime in, on July 20th. Um, so I, I emailed him back and I kind of was just thinking about how 
can this man be connected to a bunch of people? One of my closest friends said something very beautiful that I think very much speaks to that. You can't be what you don't see. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is like both connect him to local groups, but then also kind of like just say, look, we can do this. We, we can do this. This might seem insane to travel all the way to Colorado to drill holes into the side of the Rocky Mountains, but why not? So in the end, it took three months of planning. It started with Zoom calls. Tiffany and I would do planks at home, like trying to train because we were still half in quarantine and half trying to like figure out what, how we could safely climb, whether it's in Central Park or outside. And like, we just figured that if anything, we can prove the point that Women of color can do this. Um, and maybe, Tiffany, I would love for you to talk about the name that we are tentatively thinking about, because I think that also plays into that. So when Lam asked, it wasn't really a like if. It was like, all right, so when are we going? I had no idea what route development was. The part about climbing that I liked is the fact that I can sit here and work on this puzzle and not think about all of the stress that's going on, uh, which is why when COVID hit and a lot of the continued, I'll say racial injustices were unfolding because they were unfolding, whether they were on TV or not, it was difficult because that was my form of therapy and escapism from day-to-day life. I found the idea of of going and making a puzzle piece out of a really large wall on the side of a mountain to be the most incredible opportunity. (laughs) I can't tell you the amount of joy of finishing the route, of bolting that last hold. (laughs) So tell me about the new route and tell me about the name you're thinking about. Yeah, so it's the route is set on what we're calling the classroom boulder. It's an amazing slab route that just continues to go up and then eventually the climber disappears over this overhang. And then after that, it's a really, it's like walking the stairway to heaven. It's just like this nice little coast up the last portion of it. So we're thinking of naming it Patterson's Pitch. And this is named after uh, a woman, Mary Jane Patterson. Uh, Historically, she is considered One of, and I say one of because it's hard to go back in history and know who was exactly the first, but uh, she's considered one of the first Black women to uh, receive a bachelor's degree. I love that. Montserrat, you've climbed their route. What was your experience? Um, I was really, really excited to to climb this, this, this route. Like I told both of them, I was like, I'm not a sport climber, but I will climb this just because it was set by you all. It was like a really enjoyable experience for me as a non-sport climber. For me, it was personally really amazing to climb a route that was set by two women of color. Um, And I'm hoping that our communities continue to carve and create spaces. And, you know, for folks that have those resources, have that power, have those privileges, stepping to the side and giving up those resources and sharing of knowledge so that our folks can continue to develop their own roles. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Alan. I think that he's a very humble person. He's someone who does not fit like the climbing like norm or stereotype. And I see him as someone who is sort of recognizing the position that he is in and creating genuine relationships with community 
to bring in more diversity with whether it's a route setter or the climbers that are coming to this area. And I just wish that I can see that more in the climbing spaces, right? Like working collaboratively, but also accepting and taking leadership from folks who are not the dominant groups, you know, queer, trans, women, Black and Indigenous people of color. Oftentimes we don't work or respectfully consider and collaborate with the Indigenous peoples of the lands that we are trying to set roots on. I think that it is through forfeiting our power and just being good allies that we can continue to build a different space in the climbing world and beyond. You know what my, the biggest highlight for me was? I look at systems for work. I look at um, how systems like govern the lives of some of the most marginalized communities in the U.S. And for me, like changing a system is like the most thrilling thing in the world. So one of the smallest things that we were able to do was that actually out of that discussion, at least two women of color are now working with Alan to build more routes outside. That's Lam Toyavo of New York. She and Tiffany Blunt, who's from New Jersey, were in Colorado last month. They learned to set a sport climbing route with Alan Primus in Staunton State Park. Montserrat Avarez Matovala is a Colorado climber and the outdoor program director for the national organization Brown Girls Climb. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.